Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 1st of June, as we record here in the IC studio. And today we are going green, sort of. We will start by discussing recycling business Renewi, which released full year results last week and is arguably trying to shift from recovery mode back to growth. Then we're looking at our cover story of the week, which is on the electric vehicle transition and some of the tangential beneficiaries of that. And for something different to finish, we'll examine the big stock of the moment, NVIDIA, and ask whether it's worthy of all the AI hype. Joining me to discuss all of this are over the line, Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Hello there, Dan. Jennifer Johnson. Hi, Jen. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And in the studio, Arthur Sants. Hi, Arthur. Hey, Dan. So let's get cracking. No further ado, et cetera, et cetera. Renewy, first up. This is the former Shanks business, for listeners who don't know. Rebranded a few years back following a big merger. It's still focused on more or less the same areas, though more than two-thirds of revenues come from commercial waste, uh, the treatment and collection of that. Geographically, it's focused in the Netherlands and Belgium, with a few other arms as well. Full-year results, as I say, were released last week. Jen, you covered these for us. What went well last year and what didn't, in short? I guess the first thing to say, really, about Renewi is that economic downturns affect it in some fairly unexpected ways. So, for instance, a slowdown in the Dutch construction industry meant that building demolitions slowed down for part of the last financial year. So that reduced then an important source of waste for Renewi. But it stayed fairly strong last year, all in all. So its commercial division, which accounts for, I think you may have said this, three quarters roughly of its total revenue, increased its turnover by 3% across the year. However, its underlying EBIT figure, its earnings before interest and tax, fell by 5% due to the usual suspects, cost inflation, higher utility bills, wage increases. And then you had the added factor, which was the normalization of recyclate. That's the word for recycled material prices. But Renewi has managed to pass on the increased cost that it experienced to its customers, presumably because it's one of the only major companies operating at that sort of scale in Europe at the moment. Yeah, this is kind of a story across a lot of sectors, isn't it? You know, the pressures on cost, volume taking a hit, but pricing uh, holding up. And as you say as well, there is the economically sensitive aspect to the business. Recyclate prices, as they're they're known, as you say, there's a normalization there that, you know, they kind of peaked, I think, about just over a year ago now. So those drops, Mm. while, you know, potentially being helpful, we think of, you know, a normalization of fall or at least a slower rate of increase as being helpful for businesses. that, That is a bit of a headwind in some ways as well in terms of what they're able to pass on and how much they can offset in terms of, some of the pressure still coming through, like labor costs and things like that. But the business, the business as a whole, you know, as I said at the top, is it, it, still looking for, you know, to get onto a new growth footing. You know, obviously these are structural growth areas, one would assume recycling and, uh, you know, the treatment of waste is a big issue and is only going to get bigger. Is it moving from that kind of situation? Is it moving from a position where it's had to deal with some problems over recent years, which we may get onto, to, to a position where it's now on you know 
a good footing for growth in the future? Yeah, I think there are kind of some compelling reasons to be bullish on on Renewi in the medium term, largely because it is one of the only companies operating in this kind of circular economy space. It's certainly the only listed company in, in London to be operating in that space. And there's this huge political and societal push towards this idea of a circular economy where, you know, there is no waste. Everything that gets thrown in a recycling bin ultimately ends up, you know, back in back in the economy in in one way or another. Compared to the kind of buzz around it, there aren't that many companies actually doing it. So I think Renui has an advantage in being this market leader. And it did say in its results that it wants to expand outside of Belgium and the Netherlands. I don't think it has any really um, kind of concrete plans for doing so. It is in the shorter term more about recovering from the various shock that it has experienced as a business, but purely on the kind of legislative side of things. There's so much noise about this, about the circular economy in in Europe, and has been for several years. It's difficult to see Renewi not being a beneficiary of that. We'll come on to the legislative uh, side of things in a minute, because there can be issues there as well, as we tend to find with a lot of companies reliant on government contracts and what have you. But I I wanted Mm. to sort of dig into the the commercial waste side, as it were, a bit more. Uh, Netherlands and Belgium, you know, to us, or maybe to me, as you know, uh, uh, you know, Benelux obviously tends to get lumped in, as the uh, word implies, all as one. But there was quite a big difference between performance in the Netherlands and Belgium over the last year. What were the sort of the reasons for that? So, according to the company, EBIT margins fell further in the Netherlands last year due to an increase in labour costs there, kind of exacerbated by the need to bring on temporary staff to cover those sort of permanent labour shortages. And I think labour shortages have been an issue in the Dutch economy in much the same way as they've been an issue in the British economy. There was also kind of compounding the the labour issues for Renui, less waste for the company to collect in the Netherlands. I mentioned the construction slowdown earlier. There were also lower levels of organic waste produced by greenhouses because these greenhouses would grow fruit and veg, temporarily cut back uh, on production in response to higher energy costs. And also a hot and dry summer led to a sort of reduction in compostable wastes. So these are all things that you don't really think about, you know, with a company that's that's sort of making products purely from kind of that come out of a more traditional supply chain, i.e. not a waste supply chain. But yeah, you know, having a hot, dry summer can mean that, you know, food waste kind of dries up. There's less of it to go into these anaerobic digesters to make biogas and, and that sort of thing. So the difference really is kind of down to like economic peculiarities in in the Netherlands as to why. Belgium didn't experience the same kind of labour shortages. I would assume that it's down to um, kind of policies and the state of its labour market before all of this, all of this happened. But yeah, there is still there's significant recovery to to happen in the Netherlands. Yeah, I, I think there's some companies said as well, some one off factors in Belgium, maybe that, that won't be repeated. But that's, you know, we'll see. We'll see how that progresses to to go back to the legislative regulatory issues, because obviously waste is a highly regulated area. Another of Renewi's division, minerals and water. And minerals, unfortunately, is spelt with a Z on the end rather than S, which to me calls into question any number of decisions <laughs> being made at the business. But anyway, you know, that, that used to be quite, or part of that used to be quite a big cash cow for, for the company, but they ran into some trouble there a few years ago with effectively, you know, the, the way that you know, the minerals and water business is the decontamination and reselling effectively of hazardous waste. Uh, in, in different products, you know, this is clearly an area where 
mm. regulators and governments are watching things very closely. It's a similar story with the UK municipal contracts they have, which is a very small part of the business, but they took more provisions, I think, this year based on, although that is slightly different, but those about, you know, effectively contracts proving more onerous than they first thought. So it's not necessarily a gimme that a government contract is going to be a great deal. But I mean, does that is that is that a difficulty when looking at the business, you know, trying to analyse how policy and regulation might change in relation to the company? Yeah, I think it, especially with these kind of these difficult substances, right? So the division is called minerals and water, um, which doesn't really give you an indication of what it does. It's handling things like waste from incinerators, glass dust, contaminated soil, construction rubble. So these are tricky substances to transport, let alone to kind of turn into to something useful. And it's clearly difficult for Renui to find ways of making recycling some of these substances profitable and especially profitable to the kind of standards that governments or you know other companies that are then buying these recycled substances expect. So last year revenues in minerals with a Z minerals and water declined by two percent um, and underlying earnings fell by more than five million euro. So their results said that there was an operational issue at one of their facilities that required unplanned maintenance, which was part of this issue. Obviously, this is sort of par for the course with any sort of construction adjacent business having some kind of a, a plant breakdown. Um, is going to be a costly issue. In the longer term, Renui says it wants to supply sand and filler to the concrete industry, but the barriers to entry there are fairly high. These have to be clean products that meet exacting standards. So in the more conventional wastes, your plastic bottles, your aluminium cans, your food wastes, um, Renui clearly has kind of a, a head start on a lot of other organisations in handling these wastes. But I don't know that it's kind of hit its stride yet with these um, more difficult kind of hazardous waste so that's a that's an ongoing risk factor and question mark over the business i think yeah it, it is i think they said as well didn't they that you know they are investing in, in capex they are there is a lot of innovation in this kind of business too as you'd expect to try and develop new ways to deal with waste of all different kinds so you know they are still investing to that end and, and looking at innovation there to help them out mark maybe i could bring you in here cause i know this is a kind of company in the circular economy you've written about before i want to talk about you know renewy's status in the uk market it is now kind of the only uh, company listed company or certainly of a decent size doing this kind of thing since Biffa was was taken over last year. There's a lot of, you know, analyst interest now about the relative multiples of the two companies and Renew is still a discount to, uh, you know, Biffa's uh, takeout valuation. D does that give it a kind of scarcity value? Could it be a takeover target too? Uh, there, there could be something in that, but not necessarily from a retail angle. I think... Uh, the company itself could derive uh, increased support, uh, mandated institutional support, given its environmental credentials. I think it's it could become a takeover target simply because of its debt position and lowly rating at the moment. Jen mentioned before that uh, its prospects over the medium term are positive, and I'd certainly agree with that. Mm. But it's hard to see at the moment any near-term price catalysts. Uh, you've got to remember there's a there's a fairly strong correlation between waste volumes, general waste volumes, and industrial performance as well. And of course, we're fairly down, downbeat on that latter measure there. 
There's some UN talks underway in Paris at the mm. moment, which is trying to get a general agreement on the regulatory framework uh, surrounding uh, plastics recycling. And any increase in regulation is generally positive for firms like Renewi as well. But you look at the, the rating at the moment, over the next couple of years, I was looking at it on a consensus basis, cash profits as a proportion of sales, they're not predicted to grow yeah. through to uh, 2025, even though sales themselves will pick up a little bit, but cost of sales are also increasing you know, in the inflationary environment. It isn't uh, immune to that on that basis. And at the moment, all things considered, it's trading at about a 40% discount to its consensus target price, which may mean something, may mean nothing. But if other companies in that space were looking at it, you know, now wouldn't be the worst time to... Uh, to have a tilt. Yeah, I think it was about 15 years ago that Carlisle did make a bid for the business, which didn't go anywhere in the end of, I suppose, if you go long enough back into any company's history, you can find a previous bid interest. Let's let leave Renewy there and go on to a different aspect of the green or greener economy now with our cover story this week, which, Mark, you have written about the EV, the electric vehicle transition. Now, we take this story down uh, one particular route that we will come to, but why don't we start just by talking about maybe a brief discussion of some of the difficulties facing automakers in this transition? Yeah, I mean, I, I just wouldn't put... I'm sure most of our uh, readers and listeners will have their own doubts about the uh, practicality of the transition. And I just mainly point out initially that there are so many, so many aspects that you have to take on board, not least of which the uh, projected uh, shortfalls in the transition metals, you know, lithium, cobalt, nickel, nickel, and so on. We're also going to have a point where some of the automakers will come under increased financial pressure. In fact, some of them already are. I, I point out in the article itself that Ford have taken some heavy losses on, on their transition to EVs. But the new and legacy automakers are investing billions in electrification at the moment, and that's increasing financial risk across the board when the, the outcomes are, um, are far from certain. I point out in some parts that there's specific issues that people don't really appreciate at the moment. Uh, one thing I've pointed out r relates to the battery lifespan for electric uh, vehicles as well. Now, that ranges, of course, but I think the sort of median average is around about 12 years. So given depreciation rates are, are fairly steep for conventional motor vehicles, but if you've got something that's going to last about 12 years, and let's not forget that the, the battery itself is the primary cost element in an electric car, those rates of depreciation have become, become steeper still. And that sort of raises questions over the second-hand market in electric vehicles too. So the basic point I was trying to make over is that everyone seems to be uh, rather enthusiastic about uh, the measures from an environmental perspective. And you can certainly understand why if you lived in a, a, a built-up environment. But I think we've yet to see the real disruption that's going to come through in this market too. It's, it's interesting that the chief executive of uh, Toyota has said that they're still banking on a, a mixed product range. And, you know, he's come under some criticism for this as well. But... You know, they're the world's largest uh, auto manufacturer, so it's worth listening to. So that sort of chaotic transition, it will sort of mirror to an extent the the push towards net zero. And I just don't think we really appreciate uh, the difficulties at this stage. On the battery point specifically, you talked about the lifespan of the battery, but for a lot of people thinking about electric vehicles or, or considering the shift to one, the issue for them is ability to charge those batteries on a day-to-day -day basis for journeys or, you know, at their homes, that kind of thing. So, so that kind of really leads into 
you know, the charging infrastructure that needs to be set up and the companies that are trying to facilitate that as well. And, and that's something you kind of dug into more detail in in the feature yeah i've i've always been an advocate of the uh, the picks and shovels argument ever since i read about uh, levi strauss and the uh, and the californium gold rush as well you know the basically the, the principle behind it is that when you've got nascent uh, products or nascent industries that sometimes well it's very often the case that you're better off investing in those industries which supply through to the nascent products as well. And yeah, we shouldn't forget that there are parallels with the development of the sort of conventional auto industry in the US as well. You know, because for every, you know, Ford Motor Company, there was dozens of automakers that fell by the wayside. So they, there's gonna be a, a limited number of uh, winners in that space, I imagine as well. Now the, the, the charging infrastructure, it's government mandated. It, it's still, I would say that it's still not necessarily an early stage technological development, but the uh, the companies engaged with it at the moment are still trying to work out the most profitable and effective mode. We'll possibly come on to that in a moment, but you've got to think as well that, you know, people have done very well out of some of the EV stocks thus far. I mean, uh, investors in Tesla have done very well, but their shares have I've been on a downward path since the end of 2021. And you think that a company like Rivian, which attracted a lot of investor support initially, and they they listed about the same time as that, they've lost about 80, 88% of their, their value since then. So I, I think, again, it's an evolving process at the moment, and we don't know which infrastructure providers are likely to come out on top. But one of the pleasing aspects of the, well, from an investment perspective, is that you're going to see consolidation with this industry as well. It'll just follow in line with the development of uh, you know, the service station model in the US, where there was lots of operators at one point, and then they started to coalesce over time. And you know, it's a question of um, economies of scale there as well. So that's why I've been sympathetic to that view anyway, the picks and shovels argument. And I think it really does uh, apply here. Although, you know, we'll have to wait, really. Investors should really wait to see exactly where, which way the wind's blowing on this. I mean, BP and Shell, some of the oil majors, you know, have interest in this area too. So those are potentially the kind of companies that could look to consolidate their position in the, the charging market and, you know, boost their green credentials at the same time. But the, the wider question as well, almost away from the investment angle, is, is you know, are these the targets or the the amount of charging points that we'll need in, you know, Europe, let alone somewhere like the US with its much bigger landmass. You know, are they are those targets achievable? How have things been progressing in the UK, say? Well, at at the moment, the UK has about forty two thousand five hundred charging points, and the proportion of like fast chargers is well, it's rather underwhelming at the moment, and they're the ones that the government are particularly interested in rolling out. The government expects that we're going to have 300,000 public charges as a minimum by 2030, which is, we'll have to get a, we'll have to get a bit of move on to, to meet that. The idea is as well is that they're going to put out the charging network ahead of demand because there's obviously, you're not going to get a rollout in EVs unless you've got the infrastructure in place. It's a symbiotic relationship, but the government uh, recognizes that the infrastructure has to come first and it, that will act as an incentive for EV buyers. Yeah. If you go to the European Union under their alternative fuels infrastructure regulation laws, they've got uh, specific targets in mind that relate to the sort of proximity of charging stations to one another. And there's, they've agreed on limits for the main arterial routes in, in Europe and also to do with heavy goods vehicles too. 
Uh, in the States, as, as we all know, the Biden administration has put in place sort of extremely large sort of financial incentives for this under the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program there. That was a bipartisan uh, infrastructure law as well. So there's not going to be any real changes to that uh, if there's any uh, change in Washington uh, next year. There is no shortage of, uh, of governmental support. But the targets themselves, will, will they make it, will they not? I mean, you know, we've only got to look. This is being conducted in parallel with the, with the transition to net zero. So those shortfalls in the transition metals I uh, alluded to earlier on, it's hard to think that there are going to be any improvements on, on that basis just because when you, when you look at what's happening with the energy market as well, there's going to be huge demands on, on copper mm. uh, and lithium as well uh, to drive electricity generation so i it's it's really difficult to think that this I'm, I'm sure people have thought this through but they seem to be overly optimistic in their outlook for this at the moment yeah i think the most recent figures in the uk are relatively positive aren't they albeit that's only one or two quarters and that, that needs to be maintained for you know several years but uh but we shall see. Norway, another country you referred to in the piece, which is, uh, as is often the case with these kind of initiatives, slightly further ahead and maybe some lessons, certainly an example there of what how things might play out over the next few years in, in areas like the UK. Yeah, I mean, I mean Scandinavian countries have, uh, have got record, you know, tremendous records in terms of uh, you know, their environmental policy as well. But I think one lesson we can take from Norway is they have uh, 55 million fewer people in the, in this country and, and have one of the world's biggest sovereign wealth funds, which has been built on the back of boiling gas. There's a central irony there, but I, I quote some research from McKinsey as well, uh, which says that, you know, they've been looking at what's happening in Norway because it is the global front runner in electric vehicle adoption. 80% of new car sales back in December as well. So one of the things that they looked at is where profits are likely to be generated. Infrastructure providers are still trying to work out what the most profitable model is going to be. And one of the main conclusions of the McKinsey research was that uh, on-the-go and destination charging, that's the sort of thing where, you know, if you're going to your local gym or a, or a, or a cinema, you, you park and then you charge up while you're there. M&S are in agreement at the moment as well. The, the idea is that this with fast chargers, you'll be perpetually charging your vehicle. It, it might only be for an hour and a half, but you go somewhere else and then you'll charge it for half an hour and, and so on. The McKinsey research said they're the likely the most profitable um, areas uh, within the infrastructure market. So that's what we can, we can learn from Norway at, at the moment. Uh, they're sort of pointing the way in terms of profitability, if nothing else. Yeah, and there are various companies doing various different types of charging as well in the UK and abroad, and we do discuss a lot of those companies in in the piece and again uh, uh, some specifics there. So do pick that up, pick up a copy of the magazine and have a look at that. I mean, there's there's one point. Sorry, Dan. There's one point worth making as well because of th this disruption or this sort of chaotic uh, transition. The the modes of car ownership may change again as well. Uh, it, it may be that uh, you know people, a lot of people don't own their car in the conventional sense now any because of leasehold arrangements and different forms of financing. But 
it may be that cars actually become more of a, a service, so uh, not dissimilar to the situation in central London at the moment, where if you want to get around on an EV bike, you, you can. That may play out in particularly in urban areas as well. But as I say, that's an evolving market at the moment. One day it will be a profitable market. I have no doubt about that, but it's evolving. So it's one for the future. Yeah. Technology, obviously, at the forefront of uh, some of those, you know, software car software as a service models and that slightly ham-fisted segue leads us on to our final segment which is about the as i say the big company at the moment nvidia unless you've been living under a rock you will probably know about at least some of the share price surge that has taken place this year it's now a one trillion dollar company by market capitalization making it the sixth largest in the world as it stands uh arthur now you I have to say, in December, we did include NVIDIA in our ideas section. And in a sign of how far it's come, how quickly, I think its market cap was under 400 uh, billion at that stage. Uh, we are now where we are. Clearly, a lot of people have cottoned on to that story this year. Is the is the hype about NVIDIA and about AI and the way it can power the, the move to AI, is that hype justified? Yeah, so I wrote the idea in December. Um, when ChatGPT came out a week later, which was obviously a well-timed yeah. tip. But I, I've been looking at the like Dali 2 and Midjourney and those text-to-image generators that come out early that year. And it seemed to me, at least at that point, that AI was like remarkable technology and NVIDIA was the most obvious company that was going to benefit from this trend. And at the time, NVIDIA's share price had come off a bit because its revenue previously was mostly driven by the gaming industry, which is what it designed its GPUs for in the first place. And gaming revenue had come off a massive pandemic surge and NVIDIA share price had come down a lot at that point. So it seemed to me that like that was a good time to buy the company, and AI appeared to be this big growth driver, although it hadn't yet arrived at that point. And data center revenue last year was below gaming revenue. But then since December, obviously, ChatGPT has come out, and everyone's gone mad about AI. Every software company, it seems, in the world is talking about generative AI and how it can add it to its software and improve its business with it. And along with that, it basically means that people need way more GPUs, which is what NVIDIA designs. A GPU is different to a CPU. A CPU is a computer processing unit, has a few cores in it. A GPU, which is what NVIDIA designs, has like hundreds of cores, which enables it to do this thing called parallel computing, which is what makes training these AI models possible. So the GPUs are essential for training these AI models. And that's why NVIDIA has posted this insane quarterly earnings report, which said that next quarter's revenue is going to be 11 billion, which was 64% ahead of the same quarter the year before and 50% ahead of what analysts expected it to be. And I've been writing about companies and tech stocks for a few years now. And I think people who have been doing it for like decades said they've never seen something of like a quarterly earnings report like that. I think on the day its share price was up 25%. Where the hype is justified, obviously it's now trading on like 12 month P of 200. So if it returned all of its last 12 months profits to its shareholders, it would take 200 years for them to get the money back. But obviously it thinks it's going to grow at 64%. So it's forward P is 47, which is still really, really high. To justify that at the like at these valuations, everything needs to go perfectly at this point. But some companies things do go perfectly for. Like Apple, there's probably no point where if you didn't buy Apple, you would like maybe just before the dot com bubble, you would have been a bit sad, but then you hold on to it for two more decades yeah. and your returns would be insane. Apple's the company that NVIDIA are being compared to to justify these valuations because it does design these GPUs, but it also has written a coding language to 
which is central for using its GPUs. It also has acquired Mellanox, which is this cable company that enables you to connect your GPUs to each other. So when you're building a supercomputer, you need their GPUs, but you also need these InfiniBand cables that Mellanox makes. So basically, it's trying to build across like, the whole stack. So it has software and it has hardware in the same way that Apple built its own operating system, but also designed the iPhone and also designed some of the chips to go into the iPhone. So if you think that NVIDIA is going to be the Apple of the AI era, then no, its valuation is like the hype is justified. Like Apple's the, is a two and a half trillion dollar company. But I guess there's a long way to go until we know how this whole thing plays out. Yeah, as you say, the, that earnings report really sort of sparked the next leg up for the shares. They had already been on a steeper increase over the past few months as well. But in terms of justifying the valuation, we should say too, even though its share price has more than doubled in six months, you know, that forward PE, I think it was 38 or so, 38 times when you wrote the piece in December, now it's about 47. So, you know, earnings expectations are increasing at the same time. It's not just multiple expansion. The question, as you say, is whether they can meet those expectations and continue to deliver. How's NVIDIA, though, got into this position? You know, I think you touched on some of those points there about being involved in the gaming industry, some of the acquisitions it's made. But how, how has it become, you know, this kind of figurehead almost out on its own? And I suppose the tangential question is, is it out on its own? What are the competitive threats to its position if... AI does take off, as people are now hoping, thinking it might. Are there other companies that could steal its lunch? So NVIDIA invented the GPU in 1999, which, as I explained, enables parallel computing. It's called a graphics processing unit because it was initially invented to produce graphics on computers for gaming. So originally, it sort of was, it was a gaming company, and gaming has been its dominant revenue driver up until the last couple of quarters. So invented this graphics processing unit used it for gaming, and then uh, they realized that actually it could also be used for training AI models. I guess we'll go back a little bit more. So in 2006, which I think is an important part of the story, they made this coding language called CUDA, which is a language that is needed to train the models on the GPUs. So a lot of the AI engineers have learned CUDA to use the GPUs to train these models. And that is an important part of sort of their moat because that kind of locks a lot of those engineers into their ecosystem. They've trained on this language, which means they can only train the models using GPUs. So if they wanted to switch to another kind of parallel computing chip, they would have to go and learn a different language. I guess we'll get to some of the other parallel computing chips when I talk about the competition. But the other important part of NVIDIA's history is in the acquisition in 2019 of Mellanox. So they also bought Mellanox, which have these InfiniBand cables that connect all the GPUs. So not only do they design the coding language, they also design the chips and they also sell the cables. So they cover so much of this ecosystem They've got themselves out way ahead. And you have to give them a lot of credit. They saw this AI trend coming from way back and then positioned themselves to be the market leader in it. And data center growth has taken off. And actually, gaming revenue is coming down, but you've also got to think that gaming revenue is going to start coming up again in the future. Like Gaming is also an industry that boomed massively during COVID. People then started going outside and not using computer games as much. But video games are also going to be a massive part of like our children's free time so they're going to be acquiring loads of gpus for gaming on top of that but the data center is the area where everyone is really really excited about microsoft amazon google meta as well have all increased their capex hugely which means they need to get their hands on as many gpus as possible which means loads more money flowing towards nvidia but you asked about competition and they do have competition they're the leader but a lot of their customers are trying to design their own parallel computing chips so amazon designing their own one, Microsoft are designing their own one. And in my opinion, Google is the biggest 
threat to them. Google already has its own parallel computing chip. They call it a TPU, a tensor processing unit. And all of Google's models are trained on its own TPUs. Google has its own ecosystem for training AI models, but currently it doesn't sell any of that. It keeps all of that in-house. They've released some papers talking about the efficiency of the TPUs, and there's a bit of beef, I guess, back and forth. Like Google released a paper saying, our oh, TPUs are more efficient than NVIDIA's GPUs, and then NVIDIA designs a new GPU and releases a new paper saying, our oh, GPUs are more efficient than your TPUs. But Google has its own ecosystem that's working really well for it. Bard is its chatbot, and seemingly it's as good as OpenAI's ChatGPT, which was trained on NVIDIA GPUs. So Google seems to be the biggest competitor, but even like AMD and Intel, which are other chip designers, are also designing their own parallel computing chips. So NVIDIA is not completely out on its own. And when you're trading on the multiple that's that high, you need to take the whole market. And if Google opens up its ecosystem and starts allowing people to access it, then Google's valuation where it's trading, when Google's trading in the 4Ps and the 20s, which is obviously way cheaper than NVIDIA. And it's got like a multi-billion advertising business. So I don't know, like if you want a safer bet, that's also gets you loads of exposure to the sort of same trends that are driving NVIDIA, like Google also seems a, like a really good option as an investor. Yeah, momentum, of course, is a powerful thing. And momentum, the, the perception is very much that it's NVIDIA, well, it, to an extent that it's NVIDIA or bust, but I'll come on to the final point, which is that there are other companies which have benefited from this interest in AI as well, not least on the back of NVIDIA's results, but in general in recent months too. You know, a lot of attention has been focused on the trillion dollar uh, metric and how NVIDIA is capitalizing, as we have just done, but there are other businesses in the supply chain as well that are potential beneficiaries of all this. Yeah, so a couple actually other tips I've done recently, which have done well so far. So it's been a good thread for me to pull on. So I've tipped ASM International. It's a chip equipment manufacturer, a really important one for high-end chips. And its machines do atomic layer deposition. Not to get into in too much detail, but they're essential for building high-end chips and they sell their machines to TSMC. ASML's machines are also essential. They do lithography and they're essential for making these high-end chips and they also sell their machines to TSMC. And TSMC is the company in Taiwan that designs all of NVIDIA's GPUs. So if NVIDIA is getting people that want NVIDIA GPUs, TSMC need to manufacture them and to manufacture them, TSMC needs to buy ASML and ASM International's machines. So it sort of flows all the way down there. All of those companies will benefit from this demand. And actually, Mark was saying he likes the picks and shovel plays. The benefit of them is that even Google also uses TSMC to design its TPUs. And every, basically every chip, high-end chip designer in the world uses TSMC to design its GPUs. So if you're worried about Google and NVIDIA and AMD competing and bringing each other's margins down in terms of the design market, you could buy TSMC and you could buy the equipment manufacturers, which have a lot less competition. The main issue, and this is probably a risk to the valuations of all these businesses and to the AI market in general, is just a geopolitical one in my view. That's the main, well, the two big issues would be either the AI is overhyped and we actually end up not using integrating AI into every aspect of our lives. But the amount of CapEx, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, Google are putting into this, it's like so many billions of dollars. You've got to think that Unless they're so far off the mark, they wouldn't be investing this much capex in this unless they really, really thought it was going to be fundamental to our lives. So I definitely think AI is significant technology. 
the thing that is out of everyone's control is the geopolitical part of the story, which is that even if Taiwan doesn't get invaded, China and the US are trying to onshore all of their supply chains, which is going to be so expensive and designing these chips. And like, if you compare Apple to NVIDIA, part of the Apple story is, yes, they made an iPhone, which was great, but they also benefited from globalization. And they manufactured that iPhone across the world and has thousands of components, and they did it really cheaply, and it was all done in China. And they're insane margins because they can also produce it so efficiently. If those supply chains start breaking down because the US and China decide they don't want to trade with each other and they need to design all their chips at home, everything is going to get way more expensive. And people buying those chips is going to cost them way more money. And if chips become more expensive, people are going to be licensing less for NVIDIA. Generally, there will just be less profits everywhere. And margins will shrink because suddenly you've lost all of the efficiencies that you've been building up over since 1990 in terms of the global supply chain. So if that happens, and it is happening, it's like even if Taiwan doesn't get invaded, they're going to start trying to localize their supply chains. In my view, that's probably the biggest risk to the whole system, which is that all the manufacturing process just gets so expensive that you lose those margins. But A good reminder that as with anything in investing, there is no such thing as a sure thing. But this story is clearly going to run and run, and we will be staying on top of it throughout. Thank you, Arthur, for your thoughts today. And thank you, Jen. And thank you, Mark, as well. And thank you to you for listening. We have run out of time, but we'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.